Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Um, I'm Chuck Eastman. If you haven't met me, I'm the college and young adults pastor here. Uh, pastor Tim is moving his sons uh, into college this weekend. And so that's awesome. Tim has an ever an, a huge list of kids. It's amazing. Um, and uh, I thought I came from a big family and it's not as big as Tim's family. And uh, so he's moving his sons uh, into college. And uh, man, by the way, uh, the Roman series has been awesome, hadn't it? Isn't that been incredible? You know, just a few weeks ago, uh, we were in Romans 9, and I just love how Tim is able to kind of take these really complicated passages and kind of, kind of untangle them for us. And right after the service was done, me and like three college guys were over here, and we we're just kind of locking horns, sovereignty and free will, and what's God doing, and how do we understand this? And, and that's what uh, God's word should do, by the way. It should coax us out, make us think. Uh, and grapple with the big mysteries of Jesus. And I just love how Pastor Tim does that uh, week uh, after week. Um, This morning, you know, as I was thinking about uh, what I wanted to teach on this morning, uh, I was thinking about six years ago, um, I went on a float trip. Anybody ever been on a float trip? Do you know what a float trip is? Do they have those in California? I don't know if you do. A float trip in Arkansas uh, is when you, you go on the river and you get a canoe. Okay, and uh, your goal on a float trip is to do as little work as possible. Okay, so I try really hard to like not use the oar, you know, like that's my goal. Um, I just wanna float, that's the idea. I wanna float down the river. And I was with a group of guys, some good buddies of mine six years ago in Arkansas, and we'd had some just incredible um, rain for about two weeks, more rain than we usually get. And so everything was super flooded, but the river we always go on is super chill. It's called the Buffalo River. And, uh, and so we were like, man, no big deal. Um, and so we got out there, we're gonna float down the river. And uh, when we got to the river, I had never seen the Buffalo like this. I'd floated in the Buffalo hundreds of times. Um, and it was so high, like it was just a raging river. Now that's not what you want when you go floating. Okay, that's like, that's not what you're looking for. You're not looking for an adventure. I know there's a lot of adventure junkies in the room, okay? But uh, that's not what you're looking for on a float trip. And so we got on the river and we started floating down the river and it's just too much work, man. So much work, I'm exhausted, it's terrible. And just another thing just to put in there, I'm not a good swimmer, okay? So a raging river is not what you want Chuck Eastman on, all right? And so we're on this canoe and we're going around and we get to where we're gonna eat lunch. And uh, I don't know why the guys I was with, they're, I don't know, they were crazy or something. And they wanted to put the canoes up on this bank. Well, because the river was so high, we had to literally navigate this corner right around this bend and then pull hard up onto this bank. And so we did that. We got all of our canoes up on the bank. Uh, And then the guys were like, hey, since we're here, why don't we swim to the other side uh, and hang out on the other side? It would be easier, you know, to wade in the water over there and swim a little bit. And of course my heart just dropped because the current was so strong. I don't know if you've ever been around a bend in a river when the water's high, but that's where the current is the strongest, right? And so I don't know why they put it on the left side. And then we're like, we're gonna swim to the right side. It's like, that's the stupidest thing, but I didn't say anything. All right, this kind of manhood inside of me is like, okay. All right, we're gonna swim. We're gonna swim to the other side. Okay, we're gonna swim to the other side. Okay, so we did it. And I mean, that current was strong and I gave it everything I got. I mean, just swim in as hard as I could. And, and I got to the other side. When I got to the other side, I could not feel my arms. My arms were just destroyed. And we got to the other side and I was like, sweet, we're gonna spend like three hours over here, right? No, no. Those guys hung out for about five minutes and they're like, all right, we're heading back. Now that's the moment where I should have been like, hey, hold up. I'm not a good swimmer and I'm still breathing hard from the way over here and I can't lift my arms, but, but I don't, you know, I, maybe some of the guys in the room can relate to me. I didn't want to say I was tired and I didn't want to say I couldn't do it. Anybody feel that? Didn't want to say I was tired and didn't want to say I couldn't do it. So we went for it. And man, for about 30 feet, I was, I was awesome. I was giving it everything I got. And I I was getting close. I was pretty, I was like 15 feet away from the bank. 
And, uh, and then my arms just gave out, just gave out. And I was like, uh-oh. So I, I thought, well, maybe I can float on my back. But have you ever tried to float on your back in a strong current? Like, that's a bad idea. So I flipped over to my back and immediately I went, whoop, like down, like down, down. And I thought, is it, I'm, I'm gonna drown. I'm gonna die right here on this river, on this dumb river, because I didn't tell people I was too tired. And, and I went down and when I came up, I was screaming, help! <laughs> I got a loud girl, little girly voice, help, you know? And uh, it was like Baywatch, man. One of the guys that was on the other thing that did not take the swim, he came running off the bank and he jumped in and he came swimming to me and he got to me, right? As I was, I was like going down, bobbing up, going down. And he got to me and he said, Chuck, relax, stand up. <laughs> I was about to drown in about four feet of water. Now, I'm not that tall, but still four feet. <laughs> I, I should have been able to stand up. But I think that's a great example of how a lot of us feel in our culture. There's this pressure on us to keep going, not to tell anybody that we're tired, not to tell anybody that we can't make it, not to tell anybody that we don't have the capacity. And so our culture presses us to keep moving, keep working, keep achieving. Never say you can't do it or you're gonna miss the opportunity. Never say you can't step into that because then they're gonna say, well, maybe you're weak and maybe we shouldn't promote you. Anybody feel this in our culture? And I think we feel it all over the place, especially somewhere like in the Bay Area where there's this, this hustle culture of just achieving and moving and working and producing. And I think a lot of people in the room feel like they're drowning, but you don't feel like you can say anything. You're drowning, but you don't feel like there's anybody that will give you permission or could give you permission to just relax and stand up, take a breath. And whether you feel that pressure because family life right now is just crazy. I look out in the room and I see some people that's got a lot of little kids and, and maybe life just feels crazy because you just are in a crazy season of life. Maybe it's because you're in the corporate world and you're just pressing, pressing, pressing. Or maybe you're a student sitting in the audience and there's a lot of pressure on you to perform. A lot of pressure for you. You're looking at this new semester and you're just going, man, I, I don't know if I've got it in me another semester to perform the way that I, I'm expected to perform. And I think that's something, that the problem that's been built into our culture is that I think underneath all of that is there's become this addiction to work and to success and achievement. And we've looked at those things and we've said, those things are the pathway to significance. And if we believe that lie, we're gonna drown. If we believe the lie that work, success and achievement is the pathway to being somebody, to being a person of worth and value. If we buy that lie, we're gonna drown. We won't make it. You know, the pop icon Madonna had something to say about this. I love this quote by Madonna. She says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past it one, I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think, oh, I'm mediocre and, and uninteresting. It's wild that she could say that. Again and again, my life and my driving life is from this horrible feeling of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. And my struggle has never ended and it probably never will. I think some of us, maybe a lot of us feel something around that, this deep fear of, of being mediocre, this deep fear of not being known or not being significant, not being a person of worth and value. And then the culture says, well, here's how you become that person of work and value worth and value, work, achieve, 
drive. And many of us are driving to the point of exhaustion. You know, Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says, more than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God, that our security and value rests in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. Did you hear that? We're buying the lie that our security and value rests in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. And that's a devastating lie because our culture and many of the people in our lives will affirm that lie. They'll affirm it. They'll speak to it. And so to, to meet that expectation will drive. You know, Solomon had something to say about this. Solomon um, lived a pretty complicated life. And, and, you know, Ecclesiastes is a book where he begins to write about the emptiness of all the things that he made ultimate. What does that mean? He says he pursued things like relationships and sexual intimacy. And he, and he put that up, he said, I'm gonna pursue that. And he found it was empty. And, and he pursued wisdom. And he said, I'm gonna pursue that as the, the thing I should have. And he, and he found it empty. I'm gonna pursue wealth. And he pursued that and he found it empty. And look what he says about this drive, this work. This is Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18. I love the way the New Living says this. He says, I came to hate all my hard work here on earth. For I must leave it to others, everything I have earned. In other words, I made it ultimate. I, I, I made it something I'm gonna be significant because of this work that I do. And then I realized, man, somebody else is gonna get it. Like I'm working for somebody else. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair. By the way, that is the end game. That's the end game if you buy the lie. If you buy the lie that work, success, and achievement is gonna make you a person of worth and value, the end game of that is despair. That's where that path will go. I question the value of all my hard work on this earth. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill and they must leave the fruits of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? What do people get for all this hard work and anxiety? Can anybody feel that? Like we're one of the most anxious cultures in human history. What's that coming from? What's, what's that emerging out of? I think it's emerging out of this constant forward motion, this passion to self-actualize, pushing, pushing, pushing. He says, what do I get for all this hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. And here's the deal, even at night, and I know this lands with some people in the room, even at night, their minds cannot rest. I know this lands with some people in the room because I know the statistics of how many people can't sleep at night, how many people are battling to turn their brain off at the end of the night and to rest. One of the core physical needs that we have that if you don't get enough sleep, you'll die early. That's the facts. Like your longevity is rooted in large part to how well you sleep. And this lie, it wants to steal that rest from us and say, you're not gonna be able to rest. And so I wonder this morning, what it would look like to push back. What would it look like to push back against this lie in our culture? Maybe this lie we're experiencing in our families. Maybe no one's saying it, but you're just feeling the, the weight of responsibility and your own head says to you, you're a person of worth if you can carry all of this. And I just wonder what it would look like to, to push back on that this morning and fight for a rhythm of rest, a life-giving rhythm of rest. I wanna lay a, a kind of a foundation of, of theology of rest. And then I wanna look at a handful of things um, that I think will help us cultivate a rhythm of rest. The first thing I wanna look at here is that the command to rest is rooted in God's created good for us. And you heard that right, the command to rest. 
I know all of us know about the 10 commandments, but a lot of us have not realized or have not taken seriously that in the 10 commandments, right along this, don't worship any other gods and don't murder, right in the middle of all of that is you have to rest. Look at this in Exodus. Exodus 20, Moses gets the 10 commandments straight from the Lord. And look at this on in verse eight, Exodus 20, verse eight. God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy or to keep it separate. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Everybody needs to rest on the Sabbath. The boss, the CEO and the employee, the moms and dads and the children, no one is exempt from the command of God to rest. And he says, need to do this. For what's that rooted in? Because you can look at sometimes the Old Testament and you can go, oh man, it's the Old Testament, right? That's, that's like, that's the Old Testament. Don't worry about that. That's not binding on us. And there's this really bad cultural narrative that the Old Testament isn't really God's word to us. It's there, it's important, but it's not binding. Anytime you kind of have that question, one way to know for sure that that's not true is to see how the author ties it to creation. In other words, he ties it to the order of things from the very beginning. And look at what he says. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God modeled it, God made it, it's for our good and it's holy, it's separate. In other words, what Moses is saying is, this is a way that people will look at you and me and go, those people are not trying to pull their bootstraps up. Those people are not trying to earn their significance. Those people are not like everyone else caught in the rat race of significance and pride and power. No, those people rest because they have a God who works. Those people, they don't have to lean into their strength. Those people, they don't have to know what's gonna happen in the future. Those people, they don't have to have everything figured out for next week. Those people don't have to have all their ducks in a row. Those people aren't, don't have to be all stressed out about how the things are gonna work out in the next two months and what things are gonna do with work and whether they're gonna get promoted or whether they're gonna get the right grade or whether things are gonna happen the way they need it to happen. Those people are different. They have confidence and they rest. That's what holy means, separate distinct. The 10 commandments was given to the people of God to pull them out of paganism and say, you are a special people and you're different than everybody else. And one of the primary ways that those nations would look in is they would see a nation rest. It's built in to creation and it's for our good. The second thing that I wanna say as a foundation for rest is that living in a rhythm of rest is married to our confidence in God and his goodness. It's married to that. Living in a rhythm of rest cannot be separated from your confidence in God and his goodness. If you don't think he's good, you won't rest. If you don't think he has plans for you that are better than your plans, you won't rest. If you don't think he is sovereign over human affairs, you won't rest. Rest is married to a confidence that says, God, you're over all of this and you're good. You're amazing. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived an incredibly difficult life. He was persecuted. He was called to be a prophet in a really difficult time. Kings hated him. His own neighborhood hated him and tried to kill him at one point. My favorite part of Jeremiah or the saddest part, of, maybe, maybe it's bad that it's my favorite part of Jeremiah, but there's this part in Jeremiah where these guys don't want him to talk to the king. So they get him and they take him to an empty well. Well, it's not really empty, you'll find out in a second, but they take him to this well, it's been kind of dried up. Um, and what's happened is the bottom of the well is just a ton of mud. And these guys throw Jeremiah in there and, and it says, he sank into 
the mud. Like that was, that was his calling. Like that was God's calling on Jeremiah's life. Like people are gonna resist you, push against you. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be like pushing a boulder uphill constantly, Jeremiah. Like it's never gonna be easy. No part of your ministry, easy. And I love what Jeremiah says here um, in Jeremiah 17. Now, now, just as you look at this for a second, you're gonna go, ha I don't see the word rest in there, Chuck, but, but read it. Read what it's echoing, read what it's saying and read the imagery. Cause I think you'll find rest embedded in it. Verse five says this. And again, I, I like the way the new living translates this. It says, this is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans and who rely on human strength, effort, work. Put your confidence in your own strength, put your confidence in your ability to make it happen, put your confidence in your hustle ability, your engine to just go, go, go. Put your confidence in that. There's only destruction at the end of that. They turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert. I love that imagery. They're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. You see that? Now see, that seems odd because it seems like the more you work, the higher your confidence would be for the future. How many of you guys know that absolutely is not true? How many of you guys know that you've only seen your anxiety go up the harder you've hustled, the harder you've worked, the harder you've pressed, the harder you've tried to get to the next level, the harder you've tried to make sure you've saved enough. You've, you've put stuff into stocks, you've put stuff into retirement and you've put it all in there and then you're watching it and your anxiety is going up and down and you got tums by your bed. I only say that because I got some tums by my bed and you're just like, ah. It just seems the more you rely on you, the less confidence you have about the future. The more you can't rest. They live in a barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land but blessed are those who trust in the Lord. Now the way that that can be translated is who, who find their refuge in the Lord. It feels a lot like rest, doesn't it? Who trust in the Lord and have made their Lord their hope and their confidence. You can't rest if the Lord's not your hope and your confidence. If you're not sure he's gonna come through, if you're not sure that he's gonna be enough, you can't rest. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried or anxious by long months of drought. Do you see how stable you become when you rest? That even when the current cultural environment goes up and down, friends come and go, opportunities open for you or aren't open for you at all. Rest and trust in the goodness of God gives you a confidence no matter what's going on around you. Their leaves stay green and look at the promise of this and they never stop producing. See, we buy the lie that you've got to work to produce and then we end up being empty and we can't produce. We burn out. The truth, the secret sauce to producing is resting, is finding ourselves deeply rooted in the goodness of God, deeply rooted in who he is and what he has done and what he has promised and his sovereignty over all of human affairs. Resting is rooted and married to our confidence in God. And the third thing I wanna look at here is that resting requires, and I think this is in our culture, we don't like this at all, but resting requires that we embrace our mortality. Resting requires that you're not gonna live forever. Resting requires that your capacity is limited. Resting requires that you have a tank and it goes up and down. It, it fills up and it empties. Resting requires that you're human. Look at Paul. I love this. 
And again, you're not gonna see rest built into here, but I think you'll hear the heart cry of Paul. Paul did an incredibly difficult ministry, again, persecuted, um, went to the Gentiles, it was very difficult. And I love what Paul says here, how he came to the end of himself and he recognized his mortality. And then the shift, the shift that happened in his heart when he realized like, hey, I'm like, I'm mortal, I'm, I'm gonna die. And our culture, when we were trying so hard to deny that, so hard to push it away, let's, let's get anti-aging stuff going on. Let's, let's make sure that we, we don't look old anymore. Let's make sure that, that we're not thinking about the end at all and let's put it off and we're still as young as we ever were. And we've got all the capacity. And Paul comes to the end of himself and he finds a beautiful truth there. Second Corinthians 1, 8 says this, for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely what? Not on ourself. Do you understand the beautiful grace in that? That God crushed Paul so much that Paul finally woke up and was like, I'm not strong enough. There was a beautiful grace in that, a beautiful mercy of God that let him get to the end of himself and go, wait a minute, I don't have it. Like I don't have wisdom, I don't have strength, I don't have energy. I've been pressed to the limit and I'm all out. He says, it caused me not to rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. That is the most beautiful thing that could ever happen to you in the gospel, that you would come to the end of yourself, that you would find that you do not have what it takes to make it. You do not have what it takes to establish your self-worth. You do not have what it takes to establish your significance on this planet and to get to the end of yourself and go, whoa, wait a minute, I'm human. I can't do it. But that guy, Jesus, he raises people to new life. I wanna put my confidence in him. It's the most beautiful thing that could happen to you and to me. It's that God would strip away all this and put our confidence on the God who raises the dead. And he delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That's beautiful. So we have this foundation then of rest is built into creation by the command of God, that it's married to our confidence in God. It's married to trusting in the goodness of who God is. And it, ha and it comes attached to our recognition that we're mortal, we're just human, we're limited. And that would lift our eyes up to say, but God in his wisdom raises dead people to new life. And I'm gonna put my confidence there and trust in him. So with that foundation, then I think there, there are five ways that I'd like to lean into this morning, five ways to cultivate a rhythm of rest. You know, when I think of these five ways, immediately I get uncomfortable. Um, and I think they might make some of you guys uncomfortable too. It kind of reminds me of the first time that I wore sandals around my wife <laughs> and she saw my toes and she went like, uh-oh. Now by then I, we were engaged. I'd kind of, you know, I had the train moving in the right direction, you know, but uh, she saw my toes and uh, you know, I don't want to get gory or anything, but uh, some of the college kids have seen my toes and on these houseboat retreats and I'm sorry for everybody. But my wife said, uh-uh, no, we're, gonna, we're not gonna be passive about this. Now I was like, accept me, just, you know, just love me as I am. And she was like, you know, we're, we're gonna do something about this. So she said, it's just, you need to clear your Saturday morning. I was like, okay, what's this about? You know, I don't know what's about to happen here. Like, what can you do to me, you know? So she says, clear your Saturday morning. We met, you know, we had brunch and coffee and breakfast. It was awesome. And uh, then we, we took a drive and we got to this little shopping complex. <laughs> and then uh, we walked 
into the, sh I saw all of a sudden I realized I was going somewhere where no man was supposed to tread. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh, what goes on in here? And I, my heart started to race a little bit, you know? And I walked in and I heard a bunch of foreign languages, you know? And I said, uh-oh, what's this about? And there's these big majestic thrones, you know? And pots below them. She said, we're getting a pedicure. So I got on that chair, I said, oh no. And I don't know if any of you men have had this experience before, but I know you women are like, you all need it. But yeah, they rolled, they took my shoes off and rolled up, you know, my pants and, and I stuck my feet in that water. And then they saw, they started messing with my feet and I'm ticklish. <laughs> and it wasn't good. I was just having to breathe deep. And then they got out some, some machinery. <laughs> they got out some stuff. And they started doing some stuff with those toes, man. They just filing stuff away. And they, they were chatting really loud. They were giving each other looks, you know? They were saying stuff I'm sure weren't, weren't biblical to say. Gossip even, maybe. Because I couldn't understand what they were saying. But about halfway through that, all of a sudden, like, and, and, I, and my wife helped me figure out the massage chair, you know? By the way, guys, it's, this is an awesome experience. There's a massage chair. So I sit in the massage chair and I hit the button and oh man, I felt, okay, I felt good. Oh, which, a ticklish. And all of a sudden I, I just kind of started to settle in. And then they, they, they got those toenails down and then I started massaging my feet and then they worked up my calf. Oh, when's the last time you had your calf massaged? And it was awesome. And I just settled in, I rested. It was so good uh, for my soul. And I think these five ways are gonna be a little bit like that, okay? <laughs> they might just be just a tad bit like that, depending on your personality. It, it, it might just feel like something is at first dying inside of you. But I want you to check this out, the first thing and this is the one that I think I put it first because I was like, let's just get that one out of the way. It's be still, be still. Oh, I hate that. I hate being still. I'm the most extroverted extrovert you've ever met. But I need to be still sometimes. Psalms 46, you introverts love this verse. I hate it. I've ignored it my whole life. <laughs> Psalms 46 says this, be still and what? No. You know what's interesting? You could say, in contrast then, if you're not still, what can you not know? Be still and know that I am God. You want your knowledge of God to stay inch deep? You want your knowledge of God, your experience of God, your ability to, to hear his voice, to lean into intimacy with him, to stay inch thick, thick, never be still. Never be still. But David says, be still and know that I am God. And what's gonna happen when that happens? When we're still, when we're quiet, God is exalted among the nations. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When we're still, God's actions are put on display. When we're, when, when we're still, we, we can hear, we can lean in and we can, we can hear the things that God would wanna to say to us. Hey, listen, that's what I've learned as I've gotten older. If, you, if you're not still, if you're not quiet for a minute, if you can't just stop and be still, you cannot process your journey. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You can't process what you've gone through. You can't process where you've been. You can't process the things that have been said to you. You can't process some of the trauma you've walked through. And a lot of us have got all this unprocessed stuff in our life that's just affecting everything we do because we can't be still. We need to be still. We need to slow down. Parents, I know you got a lot of kids. I don't have them. And so maybe I'm speaking from a place of no experience but I grew up in a big family. If you won't slow down, your kids can't. If you won't slow down, if you won't stop driving, if you can't 
carve out some time to be still. What makes you think your kids ever will? We've got to create that place for those people around us. We've got to be still. Number two, sleep. Sleep. Now, again, I'm just kind of preaching at myself. Is that all right to preach at myself this morning? I think I'm in the category of people who do not get the recommended seven to eight hours of sleep a night. By a show of hands, does anybody get the recommended seven to eight hours? Okay, there's a few of you guys. The rest of us go talk to them, find out their secret, right? Studies show that most of us are getting around 6.8, which means if that's the average, a lot of us are getting below that, right? We need to sleep. Look at what Solomon says. In Psalms 127, he says, unless the Lord builds the house, and, and, and just pause there for a second. Solomon, when he's talking about building a house, he's not talking about building the, you know, the house he's gonna go live in. He's not talking about you know, building his dream home, vacation home, okay? He's talking about his legacy. He's talking about his reputation. He's talking about his family and what's gonna endure over generations. And what he says is, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In other words, you try to build your legacy. You try to build a future for your family. You try to do all of that. And if you, unless the Lord does it, it's in vain. So he says, unless the Lord watches over the city, unless he watches over your stuff and your investments and your family and your kids, unless the Lord watches over all these things you feel responsible for, the watchman stays awake in vain unless the Lord's watching over it. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives his loved ones what? Sleep, sleep is the gift of God to his children. And it is rooted in his children saying, you're the one who's gonna build my reputation. You're the one who's gonna open up the doors I need to go through. You're the one that's gonna make sure that my kids have a legacy. You're the one that superintends over all the things I feel responsible for. And with that, I can sleep. It's the gift of God to the children he loves. So we need to lean into that. We need, we need to press into God's gift. And, and, and there's a lot, of, I, I got a lot of stuff here about ways you can make sure you get better sleep. And I think we've all probably read a lot of that stuff. But there's a lot of things at stake if you and I don't get the sleep we need, if we don't lean into all that God's provided for us in sleep. For example, all the studies around emotional intelligence, which is your ability to kind of manage your emotions are linked to sleep. Your ability to be creative linked to sleep. Your ability to be empathetic. Hey, parents, if you're finding it difficult to lean into your kids' wild emotions, I had a lot of those when I was a kid. And if you're finding it hard to kind of lean in and and hear and and watch, it's linked to sleep. All the good stuff we wanna see coming out of our lives, our ability to be patient, control our anger, fight temptation. These things are all linked to our sleep and God provides it as a gift to his children. I just wanna be sensitive to this because I know that there are people in the room that this is a real battle people who are making sure they don't look at their phone for two hours before they go to bed, people who are trying to do all the right stuff, making sure the room is clean and dark and and comforting. There there are people that are doing a lot of things, people who have really battled with this. And I just wanna offer God's grace to you and say, hey, you're his child. You're his son, you're his daughter. God wants this for you. And I just wanna encourage you, you can ask for it. You can press into it. The third thing, and I'm probably, I'm almost getting to the end here. The third thing is, is we wanna train our heart to rejoice. We wanna train our heart to rejoice. Look at what David says in Psalms five. 
Look at what David says in Psalms 511. But let, and that's an important word because it's not automatic, but let all who take refuge, right? Who, who rest in, who, who lean in to God and you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. Don't you see that? That, that part of connected to coming and resting is rejoicing. Now, this part's a little more comfortable for me, but maybe for some of you, you're just like, I don't know, I don't wanna do that. That feels weird to me. But could it be that when you rest, you don't really rest, you just veg your brain out on TV. And anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm just talking to Chuck Eastman. That maybe were you, when you stop doing the hustle, you don't really rest, you just zonk out. You become like a zombie. And what I wonder is, I wonder if there needs to be an intentionality around when we go in refuge, when we, when we lean ourselves into God. And here it says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing. Now that's a beautiful thing about gathering together as a congregation. That's a beautiful thing about coming together on the Sabbath is we come together and we collectively lift up our voice and say, we're gonna trust you. We're, we're gonna take out this time to say, we're not doing any work. We're gonna let things hang. We're gonna let things unresolved and we're gonna sing and celebrate you. You know, deeply connected to this, training ourselves to rejoice is the fourth thing, which is to gather in your community for regular celebrations to gather in your community for regular celebrations. Now, if you read in Leviticus 23, which is not gonna come up on the screen because it's a lot, but if you read in there, God commanded seven feasts. Okay, did you hear the word feast? Somebody should say amen. Okay, you guys, this guy's been talking for a long time and I'm ready for a feast. Seven feasts were commanded. And God said to his people, I want you to gather. And if you read Leviticus 23, you'll see that before it describes each commanded feast that the people of God were supposed to do, it says on this feast, do no work, rest and eat. Amen. <laughs> do no work, rest and eat. I just wanna just briefly talk about these seven feasts. The Sabbath is the first one. It's a feast. Listen, you haven't Sabbathed yet if you haven't eaten yet. Come worship, sing, but man, when you're done with church today, go eat and eat something good. My favorite is banchan down the street. Some Korean fried chicken, man. I'm gonna tear that stuff up after church. You can join me. It's the Sabbath. Eat, celebrate, but don't do it alone. See, this is where the extrovert is like, oh yeah. See, you introverts love the be still, but I love the celebration. See, I love, Jeevan got about 100 people to go to a baseball game last week. If you guys know Jeevan, he's awesome. And about 100 people went to a Giants game. I love it. I didn't watch the game. I could not tell you one thing that happened in that game. Well, I was talking, talking and eating food. I, I made a mental decision. When I get to that game, I'm gonna hang out and I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend a lot of money on food. I'm gonna get a hamburger and a hot dog and popcorn. I'm gonna celebrate. Some of you introverts are just getting tight already. <laughs> but introverts and extroverts, we need to celebrate with our community. We have to lean in to all that God is doing. It's a feast. There's the Passover feast where they celebrate that God passed over the firstborn because of the blood that was on the, the door. The feast of the first fruits, it's the, the eating and the feast and the celebration that all the first fruits belong to God. There's the feast of weeks. And what's the feast of weeks is when they do the harvest, but they make sure that the poor is taken care of among them, that even the poor could eat and celebrate with them. There's the day of atonement where sacrifices are made and they feast to celebrate that the blood of an innocent lamb was poured out for them so they could be righteous. There's the feast of booths and my personal favorite, is the Feast of Trumpets. 
Now, if you read this in Leviticus, you're gonna, you're gonna notice that there's almost no detail except this. That at this feast, they get all the trumpets together and they go, boop, 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 boop. stop working, rest and eat. I love that. I just want to be a voice for you this morning to lean in and say, boop, boop, boop. stop, you can rest, eat, celebrate. I love that. I love that it was built in. And just so you go, well, that doesn't seem very spiritual. The sound of the trumpet is used all over scripture to say the Lord is coming. That's what heaven is. It's the marriage feast of the lamb where God shows up and his people eat and the trumpet is blown and he comes and celebrates and his people rest in his presence. It's a beautiful festival, practice, gathering, in community for regular celebrations. And then the last thing, and, and I promise I'm almost done, is to practice dependence through prayer. Look at Psalms 34. Psalms 34 says this, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me and he freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help. And what's the opposite of that? They don't trust in themselves. They don't trust in their strength. If they look to him for help, they will be radiant with joy and no shadow of shame will darken their faces. And you go, well, Chuck, why do you you like that verse? I'll tell you why, it's that shadow of shame. I think a lot of us have a shame cycle voice in our head when we try to rest. Can you rest yet? You haven't done enough. Have you rest yet? You haven't finished the project. Can you rest yet? You still have that thing you gotta do. And and there's this shame cycle, this voice that says, I didn't try hard enough. I didn't do enough. I didn't live up to expectations. And I want you to know the, the best way to fight that voice when you're trying to rest is pray. Go, I can't just stop and do nothing. That's okay, don't stop and do nothing. Stop and pray. And in your resting, intentionally, Press your stuff, offload your stuff and say, hey, Jesus, this is yours and I'm gonna rest. And I'm gonna be, I'm gonna put my confidence in the fact that when I do that, I won't be ashamed. When I do that, I'm not gonna miss out. When I do that, I'm not gonna miss the next opportunity. God, I'm gonna put my confidence that you superintend over all of these things. You know, this invitation to rest is the gift of Jesus in the gospel. In fact, Jesus intentionally invites us to this in Matthew. And all of these things are a gift from God to us, his children. Look at what he says in Matthew as he invites us to rest. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is claiming that knowing him and living under his authority is the only hope, the only hope a heart has at finding true and lasting rest. Rest from proving your significance. Rest from establishing your identity. Rest from earning your worth. Rest from climbing the ladder. Rest from measuring up to mom and dad. Rest to needing to take care of everyone else. And rest to earning love, especially from God. Jesus says, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to fight for it. That's what the cross is all about. It is offered as a free gift of grace. Come know me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. So we're gonna respond in worship. But before we do, I just wanna know if there's somebody sitting out there that you really need rest. And you came into this room in a very broken place.
and you, you hear Jesus saying, hey, rest is available, but you're not sure that's true. If that's what you need this morning, I'd like to pray for you. So if you came to this place saying, I want this rest available in the gospel, available through the blood of Jesus, would you just stand up where you are? Just stand up where you are and I wanna pray for you. If you want the rest that Jesus offers you, just stand where you are. Jesus, you love us so much. And you, at great cost to yourself, has gathered us to this place and offered us grace and rest and all of our worth and all of our significance can find its place here in you. So you see the hearts of those that stand and maybe the hearts of many who haven't stood. And from your storehouse of grace, would you pour rest over them? Would you give your children sleep tonight? Would you satisfy their hearts with food this afternoon? And when they're still, would you speak? incredible clarity into their lives. Would you do these miracles in Jesus' name? Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.